This week's episode of Discovering Trek is brought to you exclusively by Fansets. Keep listening for this week's special discount offer code exclusively for Discovering Trek listeners. Discover a whole new universe of pin collectibles with Fansets online at fansets.com. A reunion, an assimilation, and a battle royale. Episode 11 of Star Trek Discovery showed us just how dangerous the AI known as Control really is, and it will stop at nothing to get the sphere data and evolve to the point where it destroys all life in the galaxy. Has the crew of Discovery made a huge mistake in trapping the Red Angel and Michael's mother, or will their actions help prevent the annihilation of life everywhere? Well, let's find out. Welcome aboard, everyone. My name is Dan Davidson, and we are Discovering Trek. Welcome, one and all, to Discovering Trek, the Star Trek Discovery Companion, presented by Fansets. Captain Catherine Janeway once said that she was no authority on time travel. In fact, she made it her goal in life to avoid it. Well, it looks like Michael Burnham's mother is the exact opposite of that, because as we found out this week, she's been doing it for a really long time in her efforts to stop control from destroying everything. As always, this is the premier podcast for the most in-depth discussion and analysis about the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, entitled Perpetual Infinity. One question that has finally been answered is the identity of the Red Angel, but no sooner is that question answered, the crew has to deal with a new challenge of devising a plan to prevent control from getting its hands on the sphere data. And speaking of control, it's time to introduce my trusted podcast partner, His efficiency and attention to detail on this podcast sometimes make me wonder if he's some form of evil artificial intelligence, but then he always says something which reminds me that he's just plain old Bill, and I mean that in the most endearing of terms. He's my very special friend, my brother in Trek, and my amazing number one. He is Bill Smith. Bill, have you ever been more excited to see how a season of television is going to wrap up than what we're seeing with Discovery Season 2 right now? Nope. (laughs) <laughs> okay <laughs> thanks buddy i appreciate the intro um um that that was endearment um thanks <laughs> you know i have to say every time we talk about control and this is very non sequitur and i apologize for it in advance i get the janet jackson song from the early 90s stuck in my head control and i love it and um I, th- that's really the only time i've ever thought of that song so i guess kudos to the the writers and the production team on star trek discovery for um making me take a musical way back journey <laughs> I actually uh, sent out a text earlier in regards to control and I actually ended with, and I love it because of the <laughs> Janet Jackson song. So, so yeah, I like that. So yeah. So perpetual infinity, lots of stuff starting to wrap up as we only have a few episodes left in the season. We got a very special guest joining us today to talk about this episode. And uh, who might that be buddy? Well, he is one of the co-hosts of Earl Grey, the podcast dedicated to captain Jean-Luc Picard and the crew, of the enterprise D of star Trek, the next generation over on Trek FM. He's the lovely and talented Justin Oser. And we welcome him for his first appearance on discovering Trek. Justin, Welcome for what we hope is the first of many times on this show, sir. Oh, well, thank you so much for the great interview. Great to be here with you guys and really looking forward to talking Discovery. I love to talk Discovery. It's always a great time. You're going to see just how crazy it is now that you've joined us for the very first time. We're really glad you're here, man. And uh, speaking of of having a good time, Bill, uh, we want to hear from our listeners and what their thoughts are about Perpetual Infinity. How can they have a good time and get in touch with us, man? 
Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Well, on Twitter, you can find us at Discovering Trek and on my face place or whatever the hell it's called. You can catch up to us at Facebook.com slash Discovering Trek. In either place, you can become part of the discussion or even leave us comments, questions, or perhaps your theory on Season 2 of Star Trek Discovery is going to wrap up. We'd be really interested to hear that. Plus, you can now send us a voicemail by going to our website at trekgeeks.com and clicking on the giant blue button on the right-hand side. Please do remember, though, that any comments you leave us could be used in a future episode of Discovering Trek. Dan. Thanks, Bill. Black alert. Black alert. From here on in, this episode of Discovering Trek contains spoilers. So if you haven't watched Season 2, Episode 11 of Star Trek Discovery, stop listening right now. Go over to CBS All Access or wherever you watch Discovery, watch the latest episode, and then head back on over to Discovering Trek. Failure to do that puts you at risk to find out plot developments and character details for Perpetual Infinity. Trainees, to the briefing room. So, gentlemen, as we gather in the briefing room to start our discussion on this week's episode, let's get your high-level thoughts. Justin, we'll start with you. Thumbs up, thumbs down, and a couple sentences as to why. Well, definitely a big thumbs up. I mean, you know, when I take a look at these episodes, and I felt this way about every episode of season two, they're doing something amazing, I think, in how they're building things up, but also the character moments that we're seeing throughout the season. And I mean, this is one where I watched it and I was like, wow, that was an amazing episode. And I usually like to rank things, but it's hard for me to tell where I rank it because they're all just so good. So that's kind of high level how I felt about it. Nice. Bill? Yeah, I have to agree with Justin. I mean, all these episodes are just varying degrees of of fantastic. You know, um, it's uh, I, this is a thumbs up for me, you know, 11 in a row this season. Um, I suspect that we're going to do that again, uh, perhaps when you give your review, Dan. But uh, I had one tiny issue with the writing in this episode, but it is so minor in the scope of how enjoyable this episode is overall. Uh, great character moments. Just uh, I can't say enough about Sonequa Martin-Green, which we're going to talk about, I'm sure, at length later on. But, uh, you know, this is a fantastic installment. We're in, I think we're in good position uh, steaming on toward the end of the season. Absolutely. And uh, again, 11 for 11, thumbs up for me too. This wasn't the best episode of the season, but I really like what's going on. It's it's hard to believe that there's only three episodes left, but with that realization, I really like how things are coming together. We've got more information about the Red Burst. We've got more about the Red Angel, control, et cetera, et cetera. And like you said, guys, I love the performance of so many people in this episode, especially Sonequa, Michelle Yeoh, and Alan Van Sprang. Just because I like to say the name Alan Van Sprang, <laughs> <laughs> it's it was it was some some great stuff going on this week. So let's get right into it. Right with the opening scenes this week with the flashbacks, and I'm gonna throw a little bit of my lost love into this episode as we record because we've got flashbacks and we've got flash forwards. I expected a flash sideways at one point, but we didn't get that. But uh, I really liked how the episode opened with that flashback. We thought it was going to be a heavy Klingon episode based on the preview, and it really wasn't. But we got that history of what actually happened uh, with um, with Michelle, uh, with Michael and her parents. So, uh, Justin, let's start with you. What do you think about that opening sequence? Um, I really liked how it tied in with how the Red Angel actually got used for the first time. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've really liked it when Discovery has used flashbacks at the beginning. I don't think they've done it a huge number of times, but it made me think back to the first episode, Brother, where you're seeing uh, the young Michael kind of coming to, to Sarah and Amanda's house. And there's something about when they have those earlier scenes, like you get into the scene and it's like, oh, the family's getting ready for dinner and there's some nice jazz music on. Like they're setting this calm uh, atmosphere and then all of a sudden, you know, things go crazy when the, the Klingons show up. I, I, I just really like that they chose to start it there because going into the episode, you're like, oh, my goodness, it's Michael Burnham's mother. And what's going on with that? No, let's go back a little bit before we go forward. So, yeah, I, I really like that they that they did that. Bill, one of the things I liked about it was um, and you actually pointed this out to me because I forgot about it, is that Michael's father is played by. Sonequa's husband in real life. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was a little touch that I liked. I mean, we knew that, that Kenrick Green was going to be in this episode, uh, this season of Star Trek Discovery somewhere. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know where. And I like this sort of continuity tie-in that he plays, um, you know, the uh, the father of Michael Burnham, uh, who we know is Mike and, and we know yeah. nothing more. So <laughs> I kind of like that tie. The other thing I really like about this scene, and it's something that's so small, but it provides some such great context across the Star Trek universe were the little robots recording everything that went on. So when Michael Burnham later in the episode is watching the recordings, um, the uh, the mission logs, if you will, mm-hmm. she sees everything from the perspective of the robots, which is the same things that we as the viewer would see. And it makes me think back to that opening sequence in the cage where we sort of get the fly through the Enterprise. And, you know, when they bring it up in the menagerie, they're like, how are you able to get... Uh, logs like this and it makes me wonder if those robots have always been around we just have never seen them <laughs> nice i did like that the speaking of continuity that the klingons that showed up were the ones that we are we recognize from season one and then not had the changes that we saw in season two so the the writing continues to be uh very strong with attention to detail and i really like that of course later on we get some more information now uh, let's jump ahead to another scene of course Layton. We saw him last week have a, a, a little uh, eye problem. Uh, I do that. I do that on purpose now. I, do oh, okay. that, I did that on purpose. Yes, Le- right. Leland, of course. Um, I like how um, we 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 were we were actually wondering if he was going to be in the red shirt roll call last week when we did this, and of course he's not. He's uh, but I think he wishes he was. After we see what happens to him this week. Um, Bill, I want to start with you because I know that you said at the beginning of this with your thumbs up that uh, there was one part of the episode that you kind of had a small problem with. So let's talk about the um, quote unquote assimilation of Leland uh, this week and what happened with control. Yeah, this really is the tiniest problem that I have with the episode. I'm kind of glad we're getting it out of the way so we can just press on with with how good the rest of it is. If I think that I don't think this is actually an assimilation, you know, for the Borg. Let's say no, I no. don't think that 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 Leland. I almost said Leighton. Damn it! I don't, <laughs> I don't think Leland is the first Borg. There were some similarities in the makeup, you know, with the veins turning black, almost like that. Uh, the the officer that gets assimilated in first contact. You see the nanoprobes get injected into him. But first, uh, this Section Thirty One ship has technology that can actually do this stuff. They're going to essentially assist in the assimilation of a human being and turn them into something else, too. That the control AI could actually develop these things if they didn't, in fact, exist. And then create this hardware and this chair to strap Leland into and this injector module um, to do that. And then uh, perfectly um, replicate an, an undamaged human on top of a damaged human. 
Um, so I think there are some plot holes here. I don't necessarily like what they've done with this. I think there could have been a more compelling way to do it. But again, um, very minor in the scope of this episode and the fact that I liked it overall. Um, it's just it wasn't it wasn't part of the plot that grabbed me. I thought it was a misstep. Okay, Justin, what do you think? You agree with that, or you think you have a little different opinion on it? Yeah, I think I have a little different opinion. I mean, I, I actually, as I was going through it in the first couple times I watched it, I didn't even think about like, oh, where did they get the ability to do this and have the chair and tie him up and all that. I mean, I assume, as at least as far as tying him up, that they have some kind of you know, little bots or something that can do that. Um, and that section 31 has advanced technology and they have right. the ability to replicate things like that or to, to have new, new technology just kind of created. And I, I know that, I mean, we briefly touched on it, but a lot of people have said, Oh, is this the origin of the Borg? And I mean, I think there's lots of reasons why not the biggest of which is that the Borg don't destroy sentient life. They like to assimilate it. So the, the thought that I had was that, from the sphere data that Control had previously gotten from Arium, that there was something in there about assimilation techniques or even the Borg that it's kind of learning from and using and that it doesn't have anything to do with the Borg origin. So, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting, uh, Bill, that it bothered you because it didn't bother me in the least and I didn't even have a thought like that. And I, I was just kind of going with it and, and seeing what they were doing with it. I can totally respect that. I mean, yeah, I, I get that, you know, Section 31 has technology that the rest of Starfleet doesn't have. Uh, I think at times they've used that uh, as a bit of, at times, fanboy service, and other times, like this, for me, it's been just to explain away um, other things that they want to do in the story, and that's fine. I mean, I think that this is really not a horrible sin in, in the course of, of this episode at all. It's just something that bothered me just a little bit. Um, it, did, it, did it take away from what happened and the action and the story overall? No, it's just something I wish they'd treated a little differently. Hmm. Yeah, I I didn't really have a problem with it. The, the whole speculation that we saw on social media this week about whether or not this was the first Borg discussion, to me, kind of felt like lazy critiquing of the episode. Because anybody who's a Star Trek fan and hmm. knows the history behind it knows that the Borg have been around for millennia. And they, they're in a different quadrant of the galaxy. Unless there was going to be some ridiculous time travel something or other taking place at the end of the season, sending um, Leland back in time to when the Borg were actually created. I really don't see how this is possible. That being said, there's a novel that was done where that actually happened and the Borg were created by Federation um, uh, soldiers. So who knows? I just don't think it's going to be in, in, in this situation. But I really I really did like that quote-unquote assimilation scene. And I got to say, the worst part of that was with whatever happened was eyes when they just filled up with that black liquid. <laughs> that was just horrendous to watch. But another great example from Alan Van Sprang about um, the acting in this season. We've seen the raw emotion and the pain, the physical pain that Sonequa has shown in various episodes. And he certainly did a great job with this scene. And that's something that we really haven't seen until this season of discovery. We haven't seen that in star Trek at all. We never see this excruciating pain sequences and we're, we're starting to see it. And it makes me think of sometimes one of the things I want to do to bill, but anyway, we're going to move along <laughs> to the very next thing. Um, and that is of course the um, identity of the red angel was discovered at the end of last week's episode. And it is Michael's mother, Dr. Burnham. Um, I got to say, and this is a small thing about the episode, but it was my favorite, my absolute favorite line of this entire episode. And it had nothing to do with what's going on right now. And that's when Pike was talking to Dr. Burnham, talking about what's going on, how that she can help, 
What what do you know? What do you don't know? And I'm paraphrasing, but basically she said, Captain, I know your future, and trust me, you wouldn't like it. That was a brilliant line. Bill, what do you think? Uh, I was right there with you. When I heard that, I'm like, oh, she didn't just do that. <laughs> I mean, come on. It was so beautifully written. It was so you know, wonderfully delivered by Sonia Sohn. And, and just the look on Pike's face after it was like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> what, huh? What's that yeah. got to do with this? Um, I just, it was such a nice nod to what happens, you know, 10 years from now. Um, and the fact that she knows everything that happens essentially to humanity. I just thought it was a nice touch. It was a very nice touch. And uh, do you have anything on that one, Justin? Well, I mean, just that, I mean, of course we all knew what she was referring to and it just, my heart just kind of hurt for Pike just yeah. thinking about that because like, as we've gone along in, in this season, for the most part, I've been able to forget what happens to him later. But then when it comes back in, it's like, ah, oh, that's right. <laughs> it's going to happen. Spoiler alert for everybody who doesn't know, here's what happens. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but you know, you can't, you can't help but still love watching it. I mean, people watch no. the movie Titanic, right? I mean, you know, what's going to oh, yeah. happen. And and you it, it makes it difficult because, as we've said all season long on Discovering Trek, Anson Mount is just killing it as Pike. We want a Pike series. We love yep. to see what he's doing. But then again, we know what's going to happen. So, A, we know he wouldn't die in any series because we know what's going to happen. That's what happens when you have retcon. But I just want to see more Pike until the accident, and I don't want to see that. So um, back to Dr. Burnham. Uh, she was very cold with Michael at first. That was – that was something I did not expect, Justin, at least at first. You know, Michael was so excited to be able to to see her mother for the first time in 20 years. But then again, when you look at it, I guess Dr. Burnham has seen her, Mike, her daughter, Michael, several times over those 20 years. What do you think about that first interaction between the two? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't sure what to make of it at first. But then as I was thinking about it later, I think that you know, if her mother has seen all of these things that have happened in her life, she's seen some things that she'd probably be pretty disappointed about, <laughs> like the mutiny and then season one and some of the stuff that, that goes on. But I, you know, like I, I think that Sonia Son as Gabrielle Burnham was amazing because through the episode, she started out as somebody that was kind of angry, like, I need to get back to this mission. Why are you keeping me here? And then she was kind of cold because it was like, they're just going to keep me here and all sentient life in the galaxy is going to end. And then, you know, as you got closer toward the end, you know, and she was having this really emotional scene with with Michael about seeing all of the things that she's been through and, you know, there's this kind of regret <laughs> at the distance that they have to have, like they're so close and yet so far. So I think the actress did an amazing job of just kind of this whole set of different emotions throughout the episode, which felt like it was realistic, you know, you'd be going through a lot of stuff if you've been through all of this. But but like one thing that came up in my mind is like, okay, it was 20 years ago, but has she been time traveling for 20 years? Has it been less time? Has it been more time? Do we know? You know, like it could actually be a really long time, maybe. Although I don't know, she doesn't look all that much older, but that just came to mind. Like how long has it actually been? Because I don't think it's quite 20 years. <sighs> Bill, I have two questions for you. Hmm. One, on th on the flip side of her being cold, what did you think about what happened as Justin just talked about and that connection that the two made later on in the episode? And B, have they explained to us the whole she's tethered to the future and the reason for that? Or did I miss it? 
Um, I don't think you missed it, but I'm going to go back and take the first one first. And I'm going to sure. touch on the coldness a little bit before I touch on the scene after that. I looked at the coldness as being, um, as, as Gabrielle Burnham doing to Michael, the same thing that Michael Burnham did to Spock, to intentionally trying to wound Michael to get her to sort of sever that... Um, that hope or that relationship and move forward just as Michael tried to do it to Spock as a child when she injured him. So that's how that struck me. Um, whether or not that's, that's correct. I don't know, but I think it fits that particular scene. And I think it's also why you see the, not really a reconciliation, but you know, the, the softening of Gabrielle Burnham later on down the road. Of course she loves Michael. Of course she's held out hope because really that's all she's had. But by the same token, she didn't want her daughter um, essentially following her through time, trying to get her back on some kind of quest. Um, but ultimately when it was time to say goodbye, I mean, what else could Gabrielle Burnham say other than, you know, I, I love you, you know? Um, and, and as far as the tethering thing, I looked at it as kind of the way, um, uh, going back to deep space nine in the episode, the visitor sort of how uh, one of them was an anchor through time. Yes. And in this case, I think Michael is her anchor through time. Um, and I, I think that she was just so inexorably linked to the red angel suit that it was she, She's become a, a part of that, that time stream and that wormhole just as the suit has. And that's why she keeps, you know, rubber banding back and forth. That's, uh, it wasn't explained like that, but that's how I, I saw it because that's just how it struck me at the time. Do you think Justin, that she's now stuck because she's not in the suit when she got pulled back? Yeah, that was a question in my mind. And and Bill, I thought of The Visitor as well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with Ben Sisko being kind of tied to this thing and he keeps getting pulled back. Yep. But yeah, I think it was interesting at the end of the episode, the time crystals destroyed, Gabrielle's not in the suit, but they both, you know, are taken back. So I took that as, you know, she is as much tethered to this thing that keeps pulling her back to this particular time as the suit is. And it also made me think like, okay, so what happens is she like pulled away and she's like in a vacuum and outside a planet and dies. I don't know. I mean, like there's a lot of ways they could go with it. Or does she end up back on Terra Elysium or this, uh, this same planet you saw for 950 years in the future? There's a lot of places they could go with it. I really don't know. I mean, I'd like to think they'll bring her back later and that that'll be part of solving the mystery, but I actually don't know. (laughs) Lots of questions, but at the same time, lots of answers this week. One of the things that we found out was that uh, the sphere data kind of has a mind of its own. And the crew was coming up with a plan of what they needed to do so that uh, um, all life wouldn't be destroyed. So they decided that they were going to destroy the data. But nope, sorry, the data says we're not going to do this. Uh, I'm I'm not going to let you do this, rather. I'm going to put up firewalls so you can't delete me kind of interesting it makes you think about the ai of control in section 31 and the sphere data that kind of when you think about it is alive if you really want to look at it that way um what did you guys think about this plan i liked i liked how they were going about it i will say that i found it very convenient that section 31 just has this little black disc that they can press a button on if ash is holding it behind his back and and try to be able to copy that data at the same time i thought it was a good plan i thought it was interesting i also thought it was very convenient and interesting that the red suit has infinite data space 
And sometimes I wish our servers at my work had that. Uh, <laughs> it. Um, but uh, what did you guys think of that? And uh, let's start with, oh, let's flip a coin. We'll start with Justin on the on the plan. Well, maybe if we can go back for a second, because as I was rewatching it with the, it seemed like the sphere data was blocking them from deleting it. You know, I was noticing, you know, that Ash did have this thing behind his back and he clicks it on whatever he does with it. And it's after that, that Saru is unable to delete the data and then he clicks it off shortly after that. So I was actually thinking it was a way, something that control had, had created so that the data couldn't be deleted. And it looked like the sphere remnants of the sphere itself was doing it. I, I like that idea, but didn't Ash look or talk to Leland later that he was confused that they were unable to do anything with it? Yeah, I think Ash is not aware that it does this, but Control is aware that it's doing this thing to block it from deleting the data as well as having the ability to copy it. Anyway, that's just something that came to mind that Hmm. made a little bit more sense than the remnant of the sphere kind of being alive and blocking that. Um, But like for the... For the plan itself, yeah, I, I thought about that. Like, okay, it has almost infinite data storage. Is it like it can somehow, <laughs> like, it has its own cloud storage, but the cloud is like across space and time, right? Like, it's <laughs> it's storing it actually across the galaxy and across different periods of time, and it can kind of get access to that whenever it wants. That's the only way I could make sense of it. And let me ask you this, Bill. <laughs> Uh, I do want to get your comments on the on the plan itself and what your thoughts are on that data and whether it was alive or something that Control is doing. But if they're going to put this data into the future in a state of perpetual infinity, hence the title of the episode, won't eventually Section 31 catch up to wherever it is and then they can use it then? I was a little confused about that point, but temporal mechanics is not my thing. I think it's more yours. So why don't you explain it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's my degree in in quantum and temporal mechanics that really qualify for me for this part of the discussion. Um, I think it's just going to keep jumping through time. I think the Red Angel is just going to keep moving throughout this time stream at various points. And while it may intersect with Section 31 at some point, they have no way of knowing when or where. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that the concept of perpetual infinity is, is fascinating. Um, I, I like the fact that this episode got a little sciencey and to quote Spock, I like science. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think the plan is a good one. I mean, you know, if, if Microsoft SQL and SQL injections can still be around in mm. this century, then I think that firewalls, um, and, and self-replicating data probably are still around too. Um, and, and the ability to grab data from the ether. I mean, how many people have unsecured wireless networks at home <laughs> and have people snooping them? I mean, so uh, this really is a lesson to the crew of the Starship Discovery. You really need to secure that data transfer link and not just let anybody snoop on it. Did you think it was convenient that a, or that a, that an operative for Section 31 was allowed to beam down to SF4 and just kind of stroll around when she put that disc on the cargo container well she'd been there before you know uh, she she was there when when michael died so i don't think that it was outside the realm of possibility i think it would have been different if tyler beamed down i think people would have been like what's going on here but giorgio had already been there so okay good answer good answer i'll, I'll, I'll allow it thank you um, thank you sure speaking of speaking of tyler let's talk about that very quick fight ouch uh, that was something that I did not expect to see happen in the episode. Um, you know, we always talk about, you know, you know, who could die at any moment. And, and I will say at the end of the episode, they talked about how he was in an escape pod. So I'm sure he's not dead, but that was, that was a surprise, especially when, when Leland pulled that 
piece of metal out of ash and blood just went everywhere. I'm like, oh, this cannot be good. Very good fight, which set up another good fight. But let's talk about the Ash and Leland fight a little bit, Bill. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's interesting? I found it interesting that um, uh, when Tyler walked in, I really liked the special effect of Leland's super speed. Well, I like that, but, you know, so let's paint the picture. I mean, the camera's behind Leland, you know, and we see Tyler in the background walking into the room, and something is going on with Leland's face. Yeah. You know, you can see something happening over over to the side, and what I really want is for the camera to do one of those swing overs and, and, and pan back down and rotate onto Leland's face so that you can see what's going on, and that didn't happen, and the mystery of that really kind of made me fascinated because I wanted to see what Tyler was seeing in that moment mm-hmm. because that's when Tyler knew something was dead wrong. He knew that that, that wasn't Leland. That was something th- that was not good. Um, I think that would have been a great reveal. Uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll still see it. I don't know. But um, I, I think that uh, th- just that moment in, in Tyler's eyes was like, oh, man. It's kind of like when uh, when Riker finds out that the Admiral is uh, has got the little... <laughs> Yeah. Creature with the, with the gills yeah. sticking out the back of his mm-hmm. neck. It's like, oh, this is not good. Yeah, <laughs> Justin, do you think based on what happened with with Tyler and the questions that obviously are coming into his mind when he's doing this mission, uh, is he going to stay with Section Thirty One? I mean, we've talked about how we want to see him in the Section Thirty One series if that's possible. But uh, what do you think? You think his uh, allegiance is going to change, or is going to stay the same, knowing that what he's doing in this particular instance was all um, kind of brought on by control manipulating him? Yeah, I don't think that it will affect how he feels about it because it's clear that these actions that he's uncomfortable with are being manipulated by control through Leland. So. I- I, I think he'll he'll stick with it. I mean, also because there isn't really a, currently like a place for him on the Klingon homeworld. There isn't really a place for him in you know the general Starfleet service. So it's kind of the only place that he has. And it you know if if you get rid of control and there is someone that he can feel he can trust more, which interestingly would be Giorgio based on what happens in this episode, then yeah, I could see him going forward with it for sure. Nice. Okay. Well, speaking of Giorgio, um, it's pretty cool. We've seen a couple of, uh, of, of just a little hint of what Taryn Giorgio is able to do when she wants to fight someone and going up against the Terminator, like she did in this uh, episode was, <laughs> was pretty badass. She, that was a great, mm-hmm great sequence and i gotta i gotta hand it to whoever choreographs these things of course we know that she's got amazing skills because she's been doing that for a long time in different movies that she's appeared in but man that was a great fight sequence knowing that she was up against a machine for all intents and purposes from our perspective she held her own pretty well right you think bill oh absolutely i mean philippa giorgio okay so people have been losing their minds over the fact that uh, Philippa Giorgio is going to be the central character in the Section 31 series because they equate her to Space Hitler. How can a woman who is subjugated and tortured and and been sadistic maintain the ideals of the United Federation of Planets and do the right thing? And this scene is a great example of how that's possible. Philippa Giorgio has one task, and that's to keep the Leland Bot 3000 from getting to <laughs> the platform and and. and you know, killing the red angel. 
And she knows that that's what she has to do in order to, to set everything right and to keep control from getting the data. So what does she do? She starts taking him on and fighting him. And it's cool because eventually over time, you can see control is learning Giorgio's moves to the point where towards the end, she, yeah. you know, she keeps missing and not landing any hits. But she's got one job in that scene, and she knows that she has to give the crew time, and that's exactly what she does. And I think that's a just a little touch on why I think Georgia will do the right thing in the future and how she will come around a little bit and still have to fight some of those Terran tendencies. Absolutely. And Justin, we've seen her soften up over the last couple of weeks, especially when she's yeah. talking to Michael last week. And of course, what she's doing this week, realizing what's going on with control and taking some action about it. What do you think about what happened with her this week? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It does continue what we've seen over the course of this season. And it has been interesting. I mean, I think that it's it's the right discussion for people to have. Like, she's done all these terrible things in the mirror universe. And why should we trust her? You know, why should we want her to be the head of a, you know, a Star Trek series? And the way that I think about it is from the time that she was born, she was very much shaped by her own universe and the expectations there and what you're supposed to do. Right. And now she's in a different universe with different expectations. And because of that, she's kind of adjusting to it. I think it'll be interesting to see if what's happening is something that's genuine, which I think it partly is, or if it's something where she's figured out, you need to go along with this in order to get power in this universe. And that's what she's also, I think she's kind of also motivated by that because I think she does have genuine care and concern for, for Michael definitely wants to try to do as much of the right thing as, as she can do uh, in the course of the mission. But I think it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds, because I think there may be that tension between, you know, doing the right thing as far as the Federation or even Section 31 and trying to get and gain more more power. I mean, what I've seen, I'm very excited about the series. I've always really enjoyed the idea of Section 31 because of the tension that it gives between the Federation ideals and trying to push that. So I think the push pull of the tension and the discussion we can have is is great. So I look forward to it. You just scored so many points. <laughs> well, we have reached that moment of discovering Trek where we take a moment to pause and reflect on those that we've lost in this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery. It's the somber part of our show, but we feel it's the least we can do for those who have paid the ultimate price. We like to call it the red shirt roll call. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. Well, Bill, after several weeks of really nothing to report here on the Red Shirt Roll Call, the last couple of weeks have been uh, full of uh, bodies and death, and uh, I, it's no different this week, is it, buddy? No, it's really not. Of course, you'll remember last week we said goodbye to little Sebastian from Parks and Recreation, and I'd like <laughs> to think that that helped us this week in uh, writing the course of the Red Shirt Roll Call yet again. Dan, this week we say farewell to Section 31 Captain Leland, but more the Leland we knew than anything else because he's obviously still kicking around to some degree we're not sure what he is now mind you but he's certainly not the man he was and we don't know how you come back from this one he's apparently been compromised by the remnants of control to become the leland bot 3000 as i referenced earlier or something and no good can certainly come of this with three episodes left we also bid adieu to several members of the starship discovery security detail they were taken out by the leland bot 3000 at the facility on esau 4 when he wanted to complete the upload of the sphere data 
We thank them for their sacrifice and honor them in the finest of Star Starfleet traditions this week, Dan. Absolutely, and that tradition is to raise a glass of Synthahol as we say goodbye to those we lost in this week's Red Shirt Roll Call. This week's episode is brought to you by Fansets, the exclusive sponsor for Discovering Trek. You know, we love to talk about Fansets and their amazing line of pin products and pin collectibles because they truly are the best at what they do. You know, when you place an order at Fansets.com, you can be totally confident that you are getting products beyond compare, amazing prices, and fantastic customer service, the best in all of Star Trek fandom. Lou John and the entire Fansets team share the same passion for Star Trek that you and I do. It, it's true. We've seen it. We've talked to them on numerous occasions just about Star Trek, and they love it with, with everything they have. It shows with every pin they release. New Star Trek pins are going to be released twice a month. And now for the month of April, which is coming up here very shortly, you can look forward to Dr. Phlox on the 1st, which is this week, and Miles Edward O'Brien from Deep Space Nine on the 15th. Now, both pins are going to be available at fansets.com as, as well as mm. almost 200 other unique Star Trek pins. So go ahead, head on over to fansets.com, put a whole bunch of pins and pin collectibles in your cart, and click the checkout button. And when you do, be sure to enter this week's exclusive discount code, CONTROL. That's C-O-N-T-R-O-L in all caps. And use that code. You're going to get 15% off your entire order at fansets.com. Now, this code is going to be available to use until Sunday, April 7th, 2019 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Dr. Flox and my bud, Miles O'Brien. That is pretty pretty awesome and in addition to those two pins as you may have heard on last week's trek geeks the folks at fansets have an amazing new line of pins debuting at stlv 2019 yes it is the women of trek collector set featuring nine awesome characters from all the trek series and a special stlv exclusive oversized uhura pin will be debuting in august as well Following the big convention, several additional Women of Trek pins will be released throughout the whole year. And here is the cool part. You, the fans, will be able to have a say on what new pins get released for this collection. We're going to be having polls in the coming months on social media to vote for your favorite female characters in Trek. And then the folks at Fansets will create pins based on those polls. So you have the chance to help shape the future of what Fansets releases and that's pretty damn exciting. Of course, we'll keep you updated on all the details and plans for this incredible line of pins all year long here on Discovering Trek and on Trek Geek, so stay tuned. Fansets, we are Star Trek, and as always, we thank our friends at Fansets for being the exclusive sponsor of Discovering Trek. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human. Star Trek has always been a reflection of our times, and in this segment, we'll take a look at what this episode helps us discover about humanity, or perhaps even what it tells us about ourselves. Lots of stuff to chew on this week, Justin. So what have you for humanity, sir? Yeah, well, one of the things that really struck me was actually the ending scene with, with Spock and Burnham, uh, where Burnham is kind of in despair, like I've lost my mother, we've lost the suit, what are we going to do? And then Spock basically has this, this really hopeful speech. And I'm wondering if I can just kind of read out what he said, because I think it was very impactful for me when I saw that. So, so he says, now does matter. 
What happened before no longer exists. What will happen next has not yet been written. We have only now. That is our greatest advantage. What we do now here in this moment has the power to determine the future. Instinct and logic together. That is how we will defeat control in the battle ahead. We will find a way. All of history can change with our next move. And then he sits down at the chessboard and says, the board is yours, Michael. I just love that, you know, we're left in this place where it seems like there, we don't know where we're going to go. There's no hope. But Spock, I think, you know, channeling some of his human side is saying there is hope. We have the now. We can do everything possible to, you know, take the next move and, you know, the future is not written. We can do this effectively. It's kind of like a little pep speech, but, but I, I just love that. And I think that, I mean, it's very relevant to our times when a lot of people feel that some kind of despair or that there's not hope for the future. And one of the things that I love about Star Trek is it gives me hope for a better future. And that's an important message. And I, and I thought that last scene was just such a great encapsulation of that. Very nice. Um, for me, this season has been all about family. Almost every episode has had a strong focus on it. Burnham and Spock, Culber and Stamets, Saru and Serana, Laurel, Ash, and Little Albino Baby, which I have a feeling we'll see next week. Uh, and the message in all of these episodes has been about the strength of family. For the second time this season, a member of the crew has had a loved one return from the dead. First, in the literal sense, literal sense, with Hugh Culber returning after being killed by Ash Volk, and now with Michael's mother, believed to have been dead for 20 years, but instead has been traveling back and forth through time. The most powerful moments this season have been the ones that have had that strong family message, and I think it's a wonderful move by the writing staff of Discovery. You know, today, we have so many news stories dealing with terrorism and death and despair. Family bonds are always the ones that keep us strong. You can always pick the people to be friends in your life, but you can't pick family. They're forever. And as I was thinking about this, I, I have to say I consider myself to be a very lucky man. I've had a family that is so close and supportive of one another, and I, I never take that for granted. Whenever I had things going wrong in my life, they were always right there to show their support and their love, even when I was in a position where I wasn't allowed to reciprocate. So like Stamets and Culber, I got that second chance with my family. And although not as extreme as returning from the dead, it's a feeling that I always hold very close to my heart. And I hope that each one of you is able to have that kind of relationship with your families. Bill? You know, we've been told by the producers that this season of Star Trek Discovery is a theme of science versus faith to some extent. But I think it's been a little different than that. I think this season has also been an examination of the here and now and how we should make the most of this time, either in our lives or, you know, on, on a grander concept in history. You know, Gabrielle Burnham says that people think time is fragile, precious, beautiful sand and an hourglass and all that, but it's not. Time is savage. It always wins. And Michael disagrees with her, telling her that now matters. Well, now does matter. It's the difference between hesitation and action. It's the difference between saying yes and, and saying no, between something you've always wanted to do and something you had always wished you'd done at some point in your life. It's the difference between telling somebody you love them, maybe for the first time, or perhaps even the last, and them never hearing the words. Time. Some say it's the fire in which we burn. 
perhaps there are times when we should have turned left instead of having turned right. But the only thing we aren't guaranteed in life is time. The time is now because it will never come again. So take that step forward. Say the words. Step outside your comfort zone because time is not going to wait for you. Be brave. Boldly go. Commendations, Palm Leaf of Axonar Peace Mission, Grand Kite Order of Tactics, Class of Excellence, Frenteris Ribbon of Commendation. Okay, gentlemen, after the seriousness of humanity, it's time to have some fun moments here on the show, and we're going to do some Starfleet commendations. Who you picked this week to receive those awards, Justin, uh, and why? Well, you know, it's it's always hard to to uh, narrow it down to one. And I think we've already talked about them somewhat, but actually I wanted to call out something in particular because, uh, you know, I, I had thought I would talk about Sonequa Martin-Green and Sonia Son, but we've talked about their amazing acting. What I wanted to call out was Alan Van Sprang as Leland this week, because like, if you compare his performance with what you see this week, you can you can see a subtle way that it's like a little bit more, a little bit flatter, maybe a little bit more robotic, but not so much so that people are like, hey, there's something really crazy going on here. But it's just kind of subtle and you could read it as he's really serious about this mission, but there was something like really small that he was doing in a lot of those scenes that was different, that I just really appreciated the the acting there, that he wasn't going way overboard, but there was definitely a difference that we could all tell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, I have a feeling that he might be in a couple other commendations. Bill, what do you got? Uh, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm actually going to hit all the bases that 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 Justin just touched on and some of the ones he didn't. Uh, Sonequa Martin-Green, first up, she has really been through several full ranges of emotion um, in the last several episodes, and it's been incredible to witness. The scene this week where she realizes her mother is actually still alive in sickbay is just heartbreaking and beautiful all at the same time. It leveled me. And that was just the beginning of the ride for this episode. It was just fantastic. And then, of course, Sonia Sohn, um, she was just powerful this week. That scene where, where Gabrielle was telling Michael that she has let her go was was incredible. It was just, it cut her, it cut Michael to the very quick. And it was intense. You could hear the heartbreak in every line. It was just such great casting on the part of uh, the people of Star Trek Discovery and just performed so very well. And then I have to agree, Alan Van Sprang. I mean, I said earlier I didn't like the developments with the character of Leland so much in this episode, but Alan Van Sprang was fantastic. I believe that he was the Leland Bot 3000 and that that iteration of him is evolving and learning just as Control does. It, uh, it was just performed so amazingly well, and I really love his performance as an arc over the season, Dan. Yeah, I have to agree. He is definitely on my list. I'll get to him in just a second. But I, too, uh, did want to give a commendation to Sonequa. Uh, she's had so many powerful moments all season. This week was no different. She pulled out all the stops last week with those amazing emotional scenes. And it continued this week. She had more of them. It just it just seems to be uh, continuous for her. And as an actress, to be able to do that really is is amazing to me. Uh, how can you not get emotional when your mom comes back from the dead after 20 years? It just They were just awesome scenes. I also want to give a commendation to Michelle Yeoh. Uh, I've been a little nervous with where her character has been headed lately, but over the last couple of weeks, as we talked about, I think those fears may be put to rest with where she's headed. And 
man, this woman can fight. The scenes with Leland were just awesome. Anytime Giorgio is in a physical altercation with someone, the choreography of those sequences is just amazing. And she, she does it with such amazing skill, grace, and it, what looks to be non-effort. And that's just a, a thumbs up to what she's able to do. And I am going to give also a commendation to Alan Van Sprang. I watched a very interesting behind-the-scenes video um, on Discovery uh, Discovery's Twitter page this week. And it was an interview with him saying how it was, it was actually difficult for him to be the regular um, Leland that we've seen so far this season. And then once the change takes place, to be emotionless but not give away that he's been taken over by control. And he did a great job doing that. So we had the, the pinnacle or the height of his emotion with the, the physical pain that he was doing when he was being um, taken over. And then we have the change to that serious methodical um, uh, Lee Leland bot 3000 as Bill likes to call it. So uh, yeah, Van Sprang has been very, very um, impressive to me so far this season too. Long range scan of planet complete. Okay, guys, so um, we got to look ahead. Maybe we could use the Red Angel suit and take a look ahead into the future and what we think is going to happen in our long-range scans. Uh, let's start with Bill. Um, you've been doing pretty good this season. I think you've got at least one, so yay. Um, what do you got for next week, buddy? Hey, I've got I've got <laughs> one out of, uh, let's see, 26 episodes of Star Trek Discovery so far, so that's not a bad ratio, and uh, that's only because I can't fit uh, this self into that red angel suit i think that would be like uh um well putting this much fat in a casing is usually happens when people make sausage that's all i'm saying um yeah yeah so i have have two things and we've touched on a couple of these briefly but the longer the season goes on the more i think one of them is gonna come true um i do think we're gonna see the enterprise ahead of the finale um, I, I do think that perhaps number one and the Enterprise crew will play a role perhaps in the penultimate episode. But I think we're going to get more than just a, hey, the Enterprise is here to take Pike away. Um, I, I think we're going to see her a little earlier than planned and perhaps because the Discovery is in distress. Uh, and then lastly, I am still hanging my hat on the fact that we're going to see Prime Lorca in the finale. I think that that's going to be a tie to season three. Uh, Kurtzman has come out and said we're not going to see him or we shouldn't expect to see him. And uh, we know that he lies. <laughs> we know that based on the whole Tyler Vogue Tyler thing from last year and everything else, that uh, I we cannot trust Alex Kurtzman's words as much as we love what he's doing on Discovery. Um, so that, that's it. I think that people have forgotten about the fortune cookie. I think people have forgotten about Lorca because Pike is so amazing. But I think we're going to see Prime Lorca in the finale, perhaps in the final moments. I, I every time you talk about that, I absolutely love it, and I really hope that that's one you're right on because I would love to see it. Justin, what do you got, man? Yeah, well, I I love what you said, Bill, because those are things I've been thinking about. But w- so one thing that's gotten me thinking ahead to the season finale as well is that there were some some interviews and some talk lately about the season finale being a game changer, something that changes everything. So I was trying to think what would be something that would kind of change everything or that might take people by surprise. And the thing that I came up with is that something happens at the end of the season so that they time travel forward and are stuck in the 24th century. And that's the cliffhanger. So that's what I came up with. Maybe crazy, but we'll see. (laughs) 
I don't even know what to say. (laughs) I mean, it would be the kind of thing that would be a game changer, right? That would totally change the series. Yes, it would. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you what, again, I'm paraphrasing, but I I was reading an article this week and the cast was talking about the end of the season and they're all saying it's going to blow your mind. They said it's going to wrap up a lot of the questions that fans have always had and it's going to be something that nobody could have expected. So Justin may have the inside track on the writer's room. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm probably wrong, but I thought I'd put it out there in case it would be it would happen. Well, we've been wrong a whole bunch, so just welcome to the club if you are. <laughs> so we'll just get that out of the way. I've got um, I've got two. One of them is a small one that I think I've actually touched on before. Before the end of the season, we are going to see Spock without his beard, and we're going to see him in the blue tunic as he's going back to the Enterprise. That has to happen. Yeah. I mean, that's not just something that we want to see. That has to happen. As fans, that's something that we want to see. It's not fan service to do it. It's just something that we need to see. But I got to tell you, watching this week's episode, the revelation that Dr. Burnham was catapulted 950 years into the future really got me thinking. And I've been saying since the summer with short or the, the, the fall with short treks that Calypso had nothing to do with Star Trek Discovery. It was just a science fiction story with a Star Trek wrapper around it. And now that this revelation of 950 years in the future has come into play, something about Calypso is tied to the season, and we're going to find out before the season ends. Oh, I hope not. I can't I, say yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, but what happens in Calypso is a different future where there still is sentient life, and there's this thing that's going on with this war with what was the Federation. I mean, I don't know, maybe. But I've, I've always thought with Calypso the – connection would be at the very end of the show where they have to leave the ship in a nebula but i don't shoot the host man (laughs) i'll shoot him down i'll shoot him down i still think those i still think there won't be a connection because of of what michael shabon said you know in describing it he wanted a story that stood apart from the tapestry of star Mm. trek on Mm. purpose so i don't think it's going to be related if it is i'm going to yell it down uh, and I will, I will take the yelling. And now my my um, long range scan doesn't mean that's what I want to happen. No, no, I, I just thought it was very convenient. Or can, I've used that word too many times this week. It was very interesting that 950 years is where she jumped that first time, and the episode Calypso takes place approximately a thousand years from the time of Discovery season two. It just was. It just was really made me raise my Spock eyebrow, I guess we could say. Yeah, but we don't know of a thousand years from when, though. We don't know when it gets stuck there. True. True. Good point. Good point. Yeah. All right, so I basically my long-range my long range scan is Spock is going to be in his tunic. He's going to have a <laughs> <laughs> so what, what I'm hearing you say is you're repeating a long-range scan. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, as we uh, get closer to the end of season two, which is such a sad thing because this, I got to say, this season has been beyond my expectations and probably beyond anybody's expectations. It's been so good. We've only got a few episodes left. So uh, what can we look forward to next week, Bill? Dan, next week, we're going to consider the 12th episode of this season of Star Trek Discovery titled Through the Valley of Shadows. Looks like we're going to Boreth and we're going to see some Klingons and their mom. Can't wait. <laughs> Chancellor Laurel in the house. Until then, of course, remember, you can subscribe to Discovering Trek by searching for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or even by heading over to discoveringtrek.com. Plus, now you can support Discovering Trek and the Trek Geeks Network of Podcasts by subscribing to bonus content via Patreon. Get access to our Carpool Conversations videos and other exclusive content. See the first of our beautiful annual supporters pins designed by Fansets. And check out our exclusive Podfleet t-shirt along with so many other great perks. 
Yeah, and speaking of uh, Patreon, Bill, we want to take a moment to recognize the following amazing producers of Discovering Trek. We are so thankful for their support, and they include Ken Tripp, Casey Shafsky, Charlie Mulvey, Chris Trebuzio, Craig Ewing, Eric Extreme, Jackie and Chris Hackney, Lionel Marshan, Matt McGonigal, Mike Bovia, Harry Michelson, Norman Lau, Patrick Escudero, Sean O'Halloran, and last but not least, the lovely and talented Scott Vachon. Now, if you would like to become a producer of Discovering Trek or, and get access to the raw audio for these Discovering Trek episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash trekgeeks where subscription levels start at a mere $1 per month. Awesome. Well, Justin, man, we thank you so much for joining us here for the first time, but not the last time on Discovering Trek. It has been an amazing conversation. And where can people find you online? Well, I guess, as you mentioned at the top of the show, you can find me co-hosting Earl Grey. That's our dedicated Next Generation podcast on Trek FM. I do that with my friends uh, Richard Marquez and Amy Nelson every week. And you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek and lots and lots of Star Trek. <laughs> do me a favor and tell Amy Nelson that Deanna Troy still cannot drive a starship. <laughs> I will not tell her that because I disagree. <laughs> well it's really great to have you here we thank you so much oh thank you it's a pleasure to be here well folks that is it for us and our discussion on perpetual infinity hit us up on facebook and twitter to let us know what you thought about the episode and about discovering trek as well we thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to listen to us talk about this amazing new chapter in the star trek universe and we look forward to sitting down again next week to talk about episode 12 and through the Valley of Shadows. Until then, here are some words of wisdom from Constable Odo. Laws change depending on who is making them, but justice is justice. And until next week, never stop discovering. Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, is a production of Trek Geeks. Executive producer Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the Trek Geeks podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and trekgeeks.com.